Well, good morning. I want to invite you to turn with me to Psalm 23. Psalm 23 as we get underway this morning. And once you have turned to Psalm 23, I once again want to ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 23, verse 1. Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. You may be seated. Last Lord's Day, we considered the figure of speech that Jesus gives us in verses 1 through 6 of John 10. And so I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 10. We're continuing our journey together sequentially through this precious gospel. And when we're in this first six verses of John 10, we saw that figure of speech and we saw from that figure of figure of speech that Jesus began by saying truly truly we underscored that by acknowledging that everything that Jesus says is true and yet at times he wants to pour great emphasis upon particular things that he says so he does that there in that figure of speech and we saw three or so heartwarming truths from there namely first that Jesus is unlike false shepherds but he is the shepherd who by divine right as the long ago promised shepherd spoken of by Yahweh in Ezekiel 34 and as the one who earned the authority to be that shepherd by keeping the law by submitting himself to the father's will by being born of a virgin being born in Bethlehem as a Jew Jewish people obviously were the covenant people of God he was circumcised the eighth day he was the one purified in the temple according to the law of Moses he was the one sent by the father the eternal son he was the one who had performed all the signs and works of the promised Messiah which is why he could speak of himself in that figure of speech as the one true only shepherd and so our savior is the rightful shepherd and after all he is as we just read in Psalm 23 he is Yahweh the shepherd Yahweh in human flesh came to dwell among us and then second we saw that this one true shepherd had an effectual call has an effectual and very intimate call that he makes to his sheep whom he knows not in some mass of people 
or faceless group of people, but by name. That he knows us by name before the beginning of time. He called you and I by name before the world was. And when he calls his sheep to come, they come because he as the eternal son, the shepherd, was sent by the father to gather to himself all the lost sheep who have been purchased by his precious blood that was spilt on Calvary's cross. And then third, we considered the enormity of the very heartwarming truth of our Jesus, the good and great shepherd of our souls, who is the one who said in that figure of speech in verse 4, he goes out ahead of us. After he calls us, he goes out ahead of us. And Jesus, having called us out and then having gone on ahead of us, is a very warm way to say And something that makes us and ought make us very glad is that he experiences what we will go on to experience before we do. Jesus, our shepherd, has experienced everything that we will experience, everything we face and will face, he has already faced. If we face heartache and loss, he's faced it. And because Jesus in his humanity as the God-man has experienced heartache and pain and yet not sinned during it as we so often do we mentioned there that he is fully able to sympathize with us in our suffering our heartache our pain and be a very good and great shepherd to us in our experiences and that's what we kind of extracted and exposited from those opening six verses last Lord's Day under the heading you'll recall Jesus is the only true shepherd. This morning we're going to consider verses 7 through 10 of John 10 under the heading Jesus is the only true way. And so that clock is wrong. Give me a heart attack. It says it's 20 to 11. Let's read the first 18 verses again of John 10, because that kind of forms one unit. I made mention of that last Lord's Day. And so follow along with me in your Bibles in John chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. Verse 7, And so Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it 
abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And I know or love my own, and my own know or love me. Even as the Father knows or loves me, and I know or love the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Father, we come having read your holy and inerrant and inspired and sufficient word and we ask, Lord, that you would please aid our time, bless our hearts, confront us as you see fit, comfort us for you know that we need it. Give us attentive hearts and minds, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I read this week of an old story about a king who suggested to his nation that he reigned over long ago, that they all take up the practice of weaving. Perhaps you've been to the Pacific Islands and they are really good at weaving and other places in the Middle East and the like, they're good at weaving. And I imagine this king asked his nation to weave for economic reasons, baskets for fishing or for whatever, so as to create an industry or something similar. And the king said to the people that if, that because he knows how to weave, he knows how to do it, that if they ha ever had any difficulties, that they should come to him for help. And well, the story goes that at the end of the first day, everyone had nothing but a tangled mess, except for one person. And of course, that person was the one person who had gone directly to the king and asked how to weave. All the people around said, how did you learn how to weave so well? And the man, the man answered directly to them, because I went to the king and asked him. And what our passage today is going to show us is that whether it is for eternal life, in the act of saving faith, or if it's for navigating the various issues of life post-saving faith, we need to regularly, continually keep going to our shepherd king, Jesus himself, always remembering that he is the good shepherd and he is the one who as a direct result of being the good shepherd, Yahweh here on earth, who gives eternal life and gives abundant life, 
who is, as has been well said, the solution to all of the problems that we have as a people, we need to be ever coming to Him. Sometimes we don't do that. Sometimes this moment here is the only time we come to Jesus. That's not going to suffice, is it? If you and I have in our life the only time we come to hear the voice of our shepherd is on a Sunday morning, it is simply not going to suffice. The result will be a tangled mess. Just a tangled mess. Humanity as a whole have the ongoing problem of the wrath of God for sin abiding upon them. Jesus said that in John 3, 36. We as Christians called out from that humanity who no longer have the wrath of God abiding upon us because of the grace of God in the effectual call of the shepherd who called us out. We have an ongoing problem. Do you know what our ongoing problem is? We no longer have the problem of the wrath of God for sin abiding upon us. That problem was taken away by Christ upon the cross. But we have an ongoing problem. And our ongoing problem as the children of God is that in our hearts and in our flesh we are given too often to the seeking of satisfaction from things that never satisfy. And that really is the deep underlying main idea of our passage of consideration this morning. And it really fits with the main idea and the theme of the Gospel of John as a whole, which I've told you many times is according to John chapter 20 verse 31, both evangelistic and experiential. This Gospel, this passage calls for belief. But it also aids us in our life of belief. The battle for the Christian life really is to be ever coming to the fountain that is Christ, to the bread of life that is Christ, to the light of the world that is Christ. We have abundant life. We have a surplus of satisfaction. We have so much in Christ and yet we fail to lay hold of what we have and we wander too often. We look away from the shepherd too often. We seek sustenance and satisfaction from inferior sources too often. I mean, that's just true of me. And I know that's true of you. That's the reality. And as I said before, if you and I aren't regularly coming to our king, then all will be just a tangled mess. We must come to our shepherd king and inquire of him, feed of him, and draw closer to him. Well, how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, let's begin to consider what the Lord would have for us today. In verses 7 through 10, under, as I said, that second heading, Jesus is the only true way. And under this heading, 
we are going to see two special features. Two special features that Jesus is the only way to true and lasting salvation and that he is the only way to true and lasting satisfaction. And yes, as we go through this gospel, that just keeps coming to the fore time and time again. You say, well, I've already heard that. We are, I've already heard about this. It's almost as though God wants us to hear it again and again and again because we so often forget. I remember that Martin Luther is very well known for saying that every Sunday to his church, he taught and reminded them of justification by faith alone, apart from any works, because we always forget it. We don't forget the theological accuracy of that statement, but we forget what that statement is meant to do in our hearts. We too often forget the gospel, both for the believer and for anyone here who hasn't yet committed their life to Jesus Christ. We need to hear about Jesus being the true and lasting salvation. And we need to hear about Jesus being the true and lasting satisfaction because too often we drift. Too often we forget what it means to be glad in Christ and too often we fail to behold the glory of Christ. And so let's begin. Jesus is the only true way, verses 7 to 10. Look at verse 7. Jesus said to them again. They didn't get it, right? Verse 6 told us he gave the figure of speech. They didn't understand it. He says, truly, truly. It's interesting, is it not, that most Christians know of the good shepherd portion of John 10. Even little kids know of this good shepherd discourse. When I was first converted, one of the first things I read was John 10, and I understood it because it's easily understood. And yet when this Good Shepherd's statement was first uttered by Jesus. It was not understood. So Jesus then repeats himself in verse 7. But this time he does so not, not so much by explaining again what he had just stated in that figure of speech in verses 1 through 6, but now by adding more details to that figure of speech. He adds more to it now. Verse 7, truly, truly. Again, Everything that Jesus says is true. And yet at times he wants to underline and emphasize certain things. And he does so twice in this Good Shepherd discourse. God really wants us to grasp the enormity. Don't sleep on John 10. We need John 10. He repeats himself. He wants us to really pay attention to all of this. In the figure of speech that we looked at last Sunday, Jesus spoke of himself as the only true shepherd. The only true shepherd, he said in verse 2, who enters into the sheepfold by way of the door. Now here, he says that he is the door. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. You would have thought that Jesus would have gone from all the talk we saw last Sunday about being the shepherd and leading us out and going ahead of us and calling us by name and then gone on to speak more about being a shepherd. And he does, and that begins in verse 11. But before he gets to talking about that, he talks of being the door. 
Interesting. In the New Testament, we read of the word door being used of a metaphor. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9, Paul writes that he will stay on with the saints there in Ephesus because a great door for effective work has opened up to me, even though many oppose me, he says. In Acts chapter 14, verse 27, it says, When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the nations, the Gentiles. But here in John 10, verse 7, is the only time Jesus himself is the door. It's the only time it's mentioned. Jesus has been likened to other pieces of hardware though. You recall in John chapter 1 verse 51, we read of Jesus being a ladder. <laughs> he was a ladder between heaven and earth, hearkening back to Jacob's ladder. And in John chapter 14 verse 6, Jesus is a pathway, the way. This here in verse 7 is another one of those I am statements from Jesus where he very carefully and very purposely uses words to convey what is called in a technical term the tetragrammaton, which is just to say Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the one true and living God. I am, I am who I am from Exodus chapter 3 verse 14. Jesus makes seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. This is the third. The first was, I am the bread of life in John chapter 6. The second was, I am the light of the world in John chapter 8. Here is the third. And then obviously soon to come next is, I am shepherd. I am. The great I am is what Jesus is injecting into each of those statements. Salvation comes from Yahweh. I am Yahweh, he is saying. I am salvation. No surprise then, he says, I am the door. I am the door by which all must enter to find eternal life. And the door by which all those who have found eternal life will then go in and out and find pasture. That is, the door is true and lasting salvation and the door is true and lasting satisfaction. And so first, let's consider the door as salvation, as the entry point of salvation. I need you to picture the sheepfold that we described last Lord's Day. A four-walled dwelling with a door where the sheep would come in at night. The doorkeeper would lay across the door. The shepherd would give him a small fee. The doorkeeper would guard that door all night. The shepherd would go and rest for the night. And wash and eat. There is no other entry point in to this sheepfold where all the sheep dwell. Jesus spoke of deceitful thieves and violent robbers who try and come in some other way. But the only way in is the door. I am the door, Jesus says. And so what is that picture for us? What does this teach us concerning Jesus who said this? What does it mean for us? Well, I'll tell you what it means for the world. There is an exclusivity to Christianity in Jesus Christ. Jesus stands out among 
the world, heads and shoulders above the world. And Christianity stands in contrast with the world because of salvation being found only in Jesus. You know, the world finds that so jarring. You want an awkward conversation Monday morning? Begin to tell your colleagues that Jesus Christ is the only way to God and all other ways are false. It's incredibly jarring. What we possess is a jarring truth. The world finds that kind of thing so bigoted, so hateful, so narrow-minded. But regardless of the scorn, it remains true. I remember being saved on the street via open-air preaching and being engaged in open-air preaching for many years. One time, the, I believe I've told this story before, one time a missionary family came to our church from India and we were out open-air preaching and the Melbourne students from Melbourne University, full of antagonism, came down holding a big sign that they had made and that sign said, the mind is like a parachute, it works best when open. And young Samuel, this little missionary boy, gracious, kind young fellow walked up to them and said would you be open to Jesus being the only way to God and they all screamed no and behold irony the world has a broken mind by grace our minds have been restored regardless of the scorn the exclusivity of Jesus remains true every single other religion every single other worldview is not only wrong but it leads a person and their soul to eternal ruin and judgment. We know Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, concerning Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And so imagine the sheepfold. It had a door. But imagine that sheepfold had three other doors on all the other walls and so it's a sheepfold with four doors and it's full of sheep and outside each door a particular religious figure is standing outside a door and explaining that he is the way or she is the way to truth and they were telling you about how you can enter through or be called out and each door was a different way of salvation and the choice is yours just choose your own adventure but that is not at all the way it is even though if the world was to give their figure of speech about all this they would say that the sheepfold sheepfold has multiple doors but there is just one door there is just one door and does it make you glad this morning that by grace and by grace alone God opened the eyes of your heart for you to see that door of salvation I, I hope you grasp that that without grace you would be trying to get in some other way you wouldn't be able to get in And God would judge you as a thief and a robber. He would take your deceit and your violence against the Son of God and He would crush you on the day of judgment and you and I would face an eternity upon eternities in conscious torment in hell. But by grace, and by grace alone, the the loving Father poured out the love of God in our hearts and opened our hearts and eyes to see 
the grace of God and to look at Jesus, the door of our salvation. I want you to know in verse 7 that Jesus did not say, I am a door. We know that. Jesus did not say in John chapter 14, verse 6, I know the truth. He didn't say that. He said, he is the truth. He did not say, I can show you the way. He said, I am the way. He did not say, I can show you a truth. He said, he is the truth. And as the door, he is the only way by which lost sinners, lost sheep can come to him and through him and find access to the one true and living God and lay hold of eternal life and rest for your soul. Do you remember what it was like to be so weary when you were lost and so exhausted and so tired? And then the heaven-sent Son of God, the Good Shepherd, came and gave you rest for your soul. But more than that, he gave protection always and forevermore. Nothing, Jesus will go on to say, can snatch from either his or his father's hand. And everything is trying to snatch you from his father's hand. Everything. There may be and there indeed are thieves and robbers who come saying there is another way but Jesus is the only way who reveals God the Father to a lost and dying world a world full of the sheep that the Father sent him to call and to seek and to save that is why Jesus says what he does in verse 7 there and but look now at verse 8 all who came before me are thieves and robbers All who came before me are thieves and robbers. When you read that, you think, hang on a second. There's a lot who came before him in an earthly, temporal sense. Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, all the prophets, John the Baptist. What's he talking about? Well, we've got to remember the context of all of this, right? Particularly from verse 1 in John 10. Jesus is talking here about true and false shepherds. And so when he says all, that's in reference to false teachers who are false shepherds. Pastors and elders are shepherds. We teach the word of God. We feed the flock of God. It is a high and serious calling. False teachers are false shepherds. They corrupt the people of God and they lead them astray. Jesus is saying that all the wicked rulers and all the priests and all the prophets who spoke against Yahweh in the Old Testament are thieves and robbers. By extension, the same is, the same is true for any false teacher or false supposed prophet today. They are thieves and robbers. Any doctrine, any teacher who pollutes the pure teaching of salvation by either pointing away from Jesus as the only true way or more common because Satan gets more and more cunning and has to scheme more and more as time goes on by tinkering with the means by which a person accesses Jesus 
That is, justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any works. If they corrupt and tinker with that, they are a thief and a robber. Just yesterday, a church in Colorado, after some 21 years, the pastor said that they no longer believe in justification by faith alone, but actually include works in the act of justification. And oddly enough, is asking for, if, they, if anyone can come and teach them that they're wrong, they'll give them $25,000. It's such a bizarre thing to do, but it's true. And they're so wrong. Jesus speaks of thieves and robbers once again, deceptive like a thief in how they deliver their message, and they are violent like a robber in what their message leads to, violent destruction. Any teaching or person that turns people's minds away from the door and the free entry into that door are thieves and robbers. And just as they existed during Israel's time under the old covenant, so too they exist today. But look at the end of verse 8. But the sheep did not hear them. The sheep did not hear them. In the figure of speech earlier, Jesus said, A stranger they simply will not follow because they do not know the voice of strangers. Sheep know the voice of the shepherd. John the Apostle would go on uh, to write in his epistle in 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. He says, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. The one who knows God listens to us. The one who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Christ's sheep know truth. From error, And the more we feed on the truth, the more we come to our shepherd king, and the more we are able to discern truth from error. We don't heed the words of the false teachers. And if we get caught up in it, it'll only be for a time, and we'll eventually be shown that error by the various means that God does for that, and we'll come back to the pure doctrine of Christ and the faith. We don't hear the thieves and robbers. They don't have our ear. And so Christ is the door. There's only one. And then in verse 9, Jesus expands things for us. Look at the beginning of verse 9. He says again, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. Do not miss this invitation that is open to all people. I am the door, and if anyone enters through me, he will be saved. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what sin you have committed. Everyone, without exception, is invited to pass through the door. John in this gospel has provided us with some very poignant examples of the type of people who can enter through this door. And I want to give those to you. Back in John chapter 9, 
There was the blind man. The blind man was told his entire life that his suffering was because of his sin. He was treated harshly by religious folk. Some of the most harshest, nastiest people on planet earth are religious people. And he was treated so harshly by them. He spent his life laid on the ground begging for money. Well, I'll tell you what, even he can enter in. In John chapter 4, the woman at the well was sexually promiscuous. She'd engaged in sexual sin. She can come and enter. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus, a man who believed he was right with God, he was a very moral man, he knew his Bible. He can come in. Whether you have engaged in immoral sin, whether you have been raised in a church your whole life, or whether you have been mistreated by harsh religious folk, the good shepherd says you can come in. Freely, you can come and enter. Augustine, who lived about 354 AD, said this, quote, There are many who, according to the custom of this life, are called good people. Good men, good women, innocent, and observers, as it were, of what is commanded in the law of God. Paying respect to their parents, abstaining from adultery, doing no murder, committing no theft, giving no false witness against anyone, and observing all else that the law requires, yet are not Christian. People will say of them, and they will say of themselves rather, we live well. Augustine says, but if they not enter by the door, what good will that do them whereof they boast? Their goodness is a goodness according to a human standard. Goodness according to the divine standard is to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, acknowledging our sin, for it is truly sin, and to receive him as the Messiah, end quote. This is an invite to anyone. When Jesus says there he will be saved, that's basically the first time this kind of switches from this figure of speech language down to real talk. He has used figure of speech that granted teaches real truth, but when Jesus says he will be saved, he is bringing it back down to earth. He will be saved. That is to mean to be rescued from sin and rescued from hell and rescued from the judgment of God. This is a free offer of the gospel. Let me share the gospel with you. You and I were born into this world very, very sinful. We spend our days sinning against God. We have lied, stolen, had sex outside of marriage, gotten drunk, blasphemed the Lord's name. We deserved punishment from a very just judge. But instead of executing perfect justice upon us, God in his love sent his son to stand in our place. 
And that good shepherd who laid down his life on his own authority, doing it for you, if you would so believe that he bore all your punishment upon the cross and rose again, you will be forgiven of your sin and you will be rescued from sin, hell and the judgment of God. It is a free offer. The door is there for you to walk through. And as you walk through that door, you will be made new. King Jesus will summon you to himself. He will alter your affections. He will subdue your sinful desires. And he will place you on the path everlasting. And so the first aspect to Jesus as door is salvation, eternal life. True and lasting salvation. The second aspect that I do believe is embedded here in our passage is the idea that those who possess that kind of salvation also have access to true and lasting satisfaction. In fact, I would go as far to say that we must lay hold of this satisfaction because it is a matter of God's glory. And to give God glory is a matter of obedience and disobedience. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We're not wrestling with something trife here. Look at the second half of verse 9 and then chapter uh, verse 10 in this second aspect here. And we'll go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. As the door, the only door given by God to get to God, Jesus is the sole way for people to enter safety, having been saved, and also to find pasture. We're not just saved and then left. We're saved to go in and out, Jesus says, and find pasture. What's pasture? It's food. It's food. Jesus said back in John chapter 4, verse 34, My food... My pasture is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. When we are physically hungry, food removes our hunger. Therefore, food satisfies. When we come to Christ, our spiritual hunger is satisfied. But the key is, and the battle is, to ever look to Christ, to ever come to Him for satisfaction here on earth, on our way to be with Him in glory. You see, when we're with Him in glory, all the earthly battles with the flesh and with the thieves and robbers who come to steal, kill and destroy, our focus on the satisfaction that Jesus is for us will all be gone. But until then, we have to remain seeking our satisfaction in Jesus To go out, rather, to go in and out and find pasture is granted us by grace, granted divine access to the deepest fountains of what life is truly about. It is one thing to have your sins forgiven. It is one thing to no longer have the judgment of God abiding upon your very head. 
But it is another thing to bring God glory by finding satisfaction in His Son. To be united to Yahweh as shepherd in the person of Christ is to be fed and to lay hold of the full knowledge of God, the full fountain of spiritual soul food and the full safety and security in God. The means to lay hold of this satisfaction is the Word of God. The means to lay hold of this satisfaction is the church of God, the local church of God. For from the Word of God and all the means of grace that are dispensed through the church is the ongoing laying hold of true and lasting satisfaction. This is why it is so dangerous to drift away from the Lord's Day gathering. This is why it is so dangerous to drift away from private devotions throughout the week. There is a battle that rages. We have a worship war. The kingdom of self and the kingdom of God going on in our heart every day. Jesus made it clear to us that whatever has our heart determines and drives the words that we speak and the things that we do. Jesus made it clear that whatever has our heart, which determines the things that we say and do, is our treasure, is our satisfaction. And so to be like that one person who actually correctly weaved that basket among a people that only had a tangled mess was because they actually went to the king who would instruct their mind to be wise. You and I constantly need to be going to the word of God, both privately read and publicly preached, so that our mind would be instructed. Because the entry into finding satisfaction in Jesus amidst a world that is trying to seek us to seek satisfaction from other things that will never satisfy is the instruction of the mind to be wise. You know, we talk a lot about needing to be wise, don't we? We instruct our children in the need to be wise. We say to one another as husband and wife, we need to be wise. We, we really speak a lot about being, needing to be wise. Well, there is nothing wiser than making sure that you and I lay hold of both true and lasting salvation, but also true and lasting satisfaction. I want you to think about this. Think about a flock of sheep. And they're just out there covered in dags, unfed, mangy-looking things. What would you say of the shepherd? That's not a good shepherd, is it? You would query that shepherd up on the hill. Well, you and I may not have everything from an earthly perspective to look like beautiful, white, um, groomed sheep. But from a spiritual perspective, we are well cared for sheep. We are looked after sheep. And what gets greater glory? Sheep moaning about life? Or sheep praising their shepherd and living in light of his goodness? We need to be those kind of sheep who bring glory to our shepherd by being satisfied in our shepherd and saying, I shall not want. 
you make me lie down at green pastures. Do you know in Psalm 23 when it says, you make a table for me in the presence of my enemies? What is that about? You feed me at the table in the presence of my enemies. You are a very good shepherd to me. As I'm in a world that is very hostile, you are so good to me. There is nothing wiser than laying hold of true and lasting satisfaction in Jesus. Jesus in the middle of verse 10 there says that he came that we may have life. He also speaks again of the thief that comes only to steal, kill and destroy. The enemy does not want you to lay a hold of satisfaction in Christ. The enemy does not want you to lay a hold of satisfaction in Christ because God gets such great glory when his sheep look to him and are so glad in what he gives them. Jesus says in the middle of verse 10, I came that may have life. That's eternal life. That's being delivered from the consequences of sin and ushered into the full blessings of God. That's what it means to have life in his name. But he added more. He added more at the very end of verse 10. He said, look there, and have it abundantly. This is a prosperity gospel preacher's favorite text and they twist it like the false shepherds they are. That little phrase in the Greek literally means to have a surplus. I came that they may have life and have a surplus. And so there's life and then there is abundant life. Jesus is not talking of physical abundance here. He is talking of spiritual abundance. Satisfaction in the midst of life's pain. You say, what does this satisfaction stuff actually look like on the ground? Let me give you some examples of this kind of thing from the Bible in the life of normal people like you and I that I read of during the week. First, think of the man that was once born blind who was kicked out of the synagogue by these shepherds and oppressed, ostracized, removed from all social, economical, and religious aspects of society for confessing that Jesus is Messiah. Think of him. He was removed from everything. And yet he was able to remain joyful and worship Jesus. When you meet the blind man in glory and you ask him what it was like to be kicked out of his community, removed from his religious community, not even be allowed to go to the market, the farmer's market. You ask him what that was like and I guarantee you he'll tell you that it was hard. But the satisfaction I found from my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ surpassed it all. Think of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. While he was being stoned to death for his faith, what did he do? What did he say? 
He cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. There's another aspect to being satisfied in Christ. You might be harshly treated. But while you're being harshly treated, your heart is full of forgiveness and you actually forgive others. Why? Because you're not finding satisfaction in life from what other people think of you. Or if they, You're finding it from Jesus. Think of the Apostle Paul. He, with such joy, wrote letter after letter while imprisoned. The house was gone. Neighborhood was gone. Everything was gone. But he had such joy in his heart, a supernatural joy. And so there's an idea of possessing eternal life that's true and lasting. And there's an idea of possessing satisfaction from Christ that is also true and lasting. And it's God's will and it's God's desire and it's God's call for each and every one of us to lay hold of satisfaction in this life. It comes from Jesus. Eternal life is ours freely without any works of our own that we lay hold of by grace. That's justification. The other satisfaction is a resource and a wellspring that we must always draw from. And our flesh doesn't want to go there. The world certainly wants to distract us so we don't go there. But we must come to our kind King Shepherd seeking ever to inquire of and delight in Him. The fountain of forgiveness, the love of God revealed to us, the only way, the door, the true and lasting salvation and the true and lasting satisfaction. One well-known theologian wrote this, quote, Abundant life is not about having stuff. It's about having peace, having joy, having God. To avoid a tangled mess of everything, like those people in that nation. We just have to ever continually come moment by moment to our shepherd king and ask him how. Because in his word, he'll lead us home. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and say thank you for the opportunity to worship you by sitting under the word of God, your word. Lord, thank you that you, by your grace, give us these moments. Father, we confess our sin of wandering from you. Father, the flesh is so strong at times, too often. We long for these moments because in these moments of corporate worship, we are realigned. Lord, I think we need great help throughout the week. 
Father, would you please help us by your spirit to lay aside the sin of seeking satisfaction in that which never satisfies. Realign our hearts and minds. Father, we humbly come and acknowledge our need for you in this. We pray for anyone here who hasn't yet walked through the door. Lord, would they find the shepherd to be so very kind to them? Help us to always avoid a tangled mess by inquiring and seeking and beholding our shepherd king. Would you cause us to live in new ways? Please, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.